Let me tell you this. Nobody on this planet, nobody on this earth, in this world, in this universe, can tell me what I'm capable of or what I can and can't do, what I can and can't accomplish. Only I say that. And let me tell you this. And you better damn sure believe it, because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it or I'm going to die trying. Get used to it. John Moxley is going to win the G1. Welcome to the Wrestling House Show, and welcome to another mini-sode covering this year's G1 Climax 29. My name is Chris, and tonight I'll be talking about the third round of block matches that took place during nights 5 and 6 of the G1 Climax Tour. Once again, I'll only be covering the 10 tournament matches that took place on those nights, so if you'd like to know more about the tag matches that took place on those shows, head over to cnjradio.com and check out my written recaps and reviews for every night of the G1. CNJRadio.com also has any of these mini episodes that you might have missed, so go back and listen to those if you need to catch up on anything so far in this year's tournament. And now, on to the matches. Night 5 of the G1 Climax 29 took place in Korakuen Hall in Tokyo, Japan on July 18th at 6.30pm Japanese Standard Time. This was an A-block night, and the first A-block match on Night 5 was the only match where one wrestler was guaranteed to stay undefeated, barring a time limit draw in this match, of course. It was Kenta versus Lance Archer, and this was a very nice big man, little man fight. I said previously that Archer has probably already faced the biggest and the smallest competitors in the G1 in reference to Will Ospreay and Bad Luck Fale, at least in the A block, the biggest and smallest, but the commentators on Night 5 were saying that Kenta is the shortest man in the entire tournament. So now Archer has faced the largest and smallest opponents, and his smallest opponent pushed Archer further than anyone else has thus far. Kenta started the match with a series of kicks and boots that were meant to wear down Archer's legs and kind of chop the big man down. Kenta staggered Archer and drove him into the corner, but even though Archer hit a big shoulder block to stop the barrage of kicks, Archer was noticeably limping after Kenta's early attacks. This would stall some of the attacks we've seen Archer do in previous matches. For instance, Archer didn't even attempt to walk the ropes during Night 5. For one, his legs were hurt, but he was also just too busy trying to avoid Kenta's attacks to showboat on the ropes like he's done in his previous two matches. Kenta was persistent, but Archer repeatedly found ways to hurt Kenta back. One of the biggest sequences early in the match had Archer chokeslam Kenta off the apron onto two young lions, then when he saw the young lions catch Kenta and prevented him from falling to the floor, Archer did a front flip off the apron and took all three of the men down. That got the crowd solidly behind Archer, and they stayed largely on his side throughout the match. Archer took control of the match for a while, and back in the ring he was making a point to call Kenta Hideo, a clear dig at Kenta who has been making a point of putting his past behind him and saying that he is effing Kenta. So in a way, the disrespect that Kenta showed Tanahashi during Night 3 was shoved back into Kenta's face during Night 5. Late in the match, both men started trading a few big moves, but Kenta couldn't get the go to sleep. Kenta ended up getting Archer down in a labelle lock, and Archer quickly tapped once the hold was locked in. So Kenta remains undefeated in three matches, while Archer finally falls with a 2-1 record. 
I think Archer is still going to do well moving forward in the tournament, but Kenta is most likely going to be right at the top of A block, at least unless things drastically change going forward. As for this match, I enjoyed it, but I think both men have already had better matches in the tournament. Match 2 on Night 5 was an intra-faction match pitting two members of Los Ingobernables de Japón against each other. Not only are they in the same faction, but they're often tag team partners as well, and they were both sitting at two points in the G1 at the start of this match. It was Sonata versus Evil, and I was really looking forward to this match ever since the blocks were announced. I like both guys, and though I do like Sonata a bit more than Evil, my hopes going into this match were more about just seeing a good match, rather than pinning all my hopes on Sonata winning. I did get a good match, so that made me happy regardless of the outcome. Ever since the blocks for the G1 were announced, Evil has been avoiding all of the LIJ group salutes when they put all their fists up in the air together. Evil was distancing himself from his stablemates, so that added some tension to this match right away. An immediate result of that tension was Sonata starting the action by hitting Evil with a series of dropkicks. Evil backed off right away and had to exit the ring before even laying a hand on Sonata. Evil went for a chair and threw it into the ring, and he used that distraction to get a cheap advantage on Sonata. That was a recurring theme for Evil. Sonata would put together some good offense, but Evil would use a distraction or the barricades or some other cheap tactic to regain some control in the match. Sonata never really did that though, and I liked how both men approached this match differently. Sonata never got mad at Evil's shenanigans though, and to his credit, Evil never overdid it. As the match went on, the pace picked up considerably, and both men were looking for some big moves. They know each other so well though that they were both having a hard time countering their opponent's counters to the moves that they were trying to do. In one of the few lighter moments in the match, the Paradise Lock did return, but Evil knew exactly how to get out of it. And unlike Osprey, Evil knew how to apply it. So Sonata was actually the first man in the entire G1 to actually get locked in the traditional version of the Paradise Lock. Evil later got locked in the rope-assisted version of the move that Sonata's been doing, but I think it's funny that Sonata tries so hard to get it on other people, but he got it put on himself first. Towards the end of the match, there were some really nice chains of counters that kept building up and up to an eventual climax. Sonata worked and worked and finally got Evil in his skull in Dragon Sleeper, but Evil somehow survived and escaped, following his escape with a couple of huge lariats that sent Sonata flying. Evil quickly followed those with his Everything is Evil STO, and Evil pinned Sonata for the win. I did kind of want the result to go the other way, but I wasn't upset. The match was good, and Evil and Sonata finally did do the LAJ salute after the match. Evil actually instigated the salute, and Sonata met it. So everything is okay in LIJ, and that makes me happy. The third tournament match during Night 3 felt a bit like a dip in the action. It wasn't a bad match, but compared to most of the other matches in the entire G1 so far, this was definitely one of the lesser bouts. It was Bad Luck Fale versus Kazuchika Okada, and this was a slowish brawl for pretty much the entire match. Fale knew that he needed to take shortcuts to beat the current IWGP heavyweight champion, so he started his plans well before either man even made it out to the ring area. We saw Chase Owens and Jado head to the ring when Fale's music started playing, but from one of the other entrances, Fale came out dragging Okada with him. Fale had apparently attacked Okada in the backstage area, so Okada was already in a lot of trouble. 
The referee started the match before either man even set foot in the ring, and the one-sided beating continued as the match officially began. So essentially, this whole match was about Okada trying to build one big comeback, and Fale had Owens and Jado help at times to keep Okada down. Okada wouldn't stay down though, and even though Okada had trouble getting any of his signature moves, he did get the win over Fale with a quick Rana pin after a little bit of a buildup. I didn't dislike this match, the story side of it was fine, but it was definitely a like one note fight. It was a brawl with a quick pin, that's pretty much it. People like Okada a lot though, including myself, so that made the tension in the match work. The next to last match during Night 5 was Hiroshi Tanahashi versus Zack Sabre Jr. Both men were winless so far in the G1 going into this match, so both men were obviously desperate for a win. Tanahashi was able to handle his desperation a lot better than Sabre though, and that proved to be the deciding factor on this night. After their previous tournament matches, their Night 3 matches, both Tanahashi and Sabre had interesting post-match comments. Both men laid down on the floor after their previous losses, but Tanahashi was just exhausted from his battle with Kenta, while Sabre was simply throwing a tantrum. Tanahashi got up from the floor and didn't really say anything. He looked frustrated, but he also looked determined to carry on and do his best. Sabre, on the other hand, thrashed around, kicked over the backdrop at the interview area, and basically acted like a child. Those differences in attitude on that night really came through in the action during Night 5. Sabre didn't throw a full-blown tantrum in his match with Tanahashi, but you could see it bubbling underneath the surface at times. Tanahashi, however, remained calm throughout the entire match. A lot of people try to meet Sabre on the mat and outdo him in grappling, but to me it seemed like Tanahashi was doing just enough grappling to play some really good defense to Sabre's holds. Tanahashi allowed Sabre to come at him throughout the match, and Tanahashi would just attempt to shut down whatever Sabre was trying to do while patiently waiting for any opportunity to hit a sling blade or some other move, or even to reverse some of Sabre's holds when those golden opportunities arose. Sabre seemed frustrated and impatient for much of this match, and I think the combination of Tanahashi's patience and experience allowed him to get more technical offense on Sabre than he might have had Sabre been in a better frame of mind. The pace picked up somewhat later in the match as Tanahashi drew Sabre into trading some European uppercuts, then Tanahashi opened things up enough to hit some of his signature moves. Sabre countered the high fly flow frog splash late in the match, but Tanahashi did one better and reversed a triangle hold from Sabre with a jackknife cover of his own. That reversal gave Tanahashi the victory, and the ace of New Japan has finally gotten his first two points in this year's G1 Climax. Sabre sits at the bottom of A block with zero points, and I can't wait to see the tantrum he throws in the post-match comments after this show. And the final A-block match during Night 5 of the G1 Climax 29 was a fight not only for both men to try to realistically keep their hopes alive in terms of points, but it was also a battle to just simply keep their bodies in good enough shape so they could physically wrestle all nine of their block matches. It was Will Ospreay versus Kota Ibushi, and both men entered this match hurting in a few different ways. For one, Ibushi sat at the bottom of the block alongside Sabre with zero points, and Osprey was only one win better with two points. With Kenta and Okada already at six points, both Ibushi and Osprey need as many wins as they can get. But additionally, both men were nursing injuries heading into this match. Ibushi's ankle was still giving him problems, but Osprey's often injured neck was the bigger story here. Osprey was kept out of action during the last round of tag previews on Night 4, 
and there was a question as to whether he would wrestle tonight or not. He was given the go-ahead, I think, the day before this match, but as he walked to the ring with loads of tape covering his neck and shoulders, it gave a clear indication that he was not okay. We know that Osprey is going to give everything, no matter what though, and we've seen the brutality that can happen when Osprey and Ibushi battle against each other, so this match made me nervous even before the bell rang. Both men started this match, understandably, cautiously. It felt like they were both respecting the danger that their opponent presented, and they were also moving around slowly to kind of get a feel for how their own bodies would react after a few days off. Abushi was the first to really press the attack, and he went after Osprey's neck pretty much immediately. Abushi had Osprey down on the mat with a head scissors, but even that simple hold looked painful knowing that Osprey's neck was already in danger. With the opening shots fired, Osprey responded by pulling Abushi to the side of the ring by his ankle and slamming Abushi's leg onto the apron. Both men would repeatedly go to their opponent's injuries throughout the entire match, and it got to the point where I really wanted to see a finish because I didn't want to see them go any further with it. The commentator spoke about how Abushi liked the challenge of having an injured ankle because it forces him to modify his style and get creative, and his creativity tonight came in the form of a brutal focus on Will Ospreay's head, shoulders, and neck. I mean, who knows how bad Ospreay's neck really is right now, but the imagery of seeing the tape covering his injury gradually come apart and fall away after multiple German suplexes, high-angle powerbombs, a Michinoku driver, and even a back-to-belly pile driver was a scary sight to watch. The falling away of the tape from Osprey's neck and shoulders felt like a metaphor for Osprey's physical condition as the match closed in on close to 30 minutes. Osprey gave almost as good as he got, though. Osprey still took risks like he usually does, but his own risks generally paid off tonight. It seemed like adrenaline and instinct pushed Osprey to attack Ibushi with his usual agile offense as the match went on, and Osprey kept looking for the Oz Cutter late in the match. Osprey hit the Oz Cutter after a particularly brutal hidden blade to the side of Ibushi's head, but Ibushi managed to survive. Ibushi used the Bomaye again tonight, and he finally hit a couple variations of his Kamigoye knee strike to finally stop Osprey from getting up. Ibushi claimed the victory over Osprey tonight, and that brings both men to one win and two losses placing both of them in a five-way tie for the lower middle of A block. Osprey versus Ibushi is always a great match, and this was no exception. I'm really, really glad that there were no ring apron shenanigans tonight, and as odd as it sounds after everything I just said, I think both men reduced the risk they might normally take in a match against each other. For one thing, they were both injured, but they also have six more tournament matches, so I expect they both wanted to preserve at least some of their functionality for the rest of the G1. The slight reduction of over-the-top and sometimes unnecessary risks in no way reduced my enjoyment of this match, though. I think this was a great match, and easily the best match during Night 5. And so that ended Night 5 of the G1 Climax 29, and Night 6 was the very next night, July 19th, once again at Korakuen Hall, and the first of the B-Block matches during Night 6 featured two men who were looking to break out of the middle of the pack. It was Taichi, who had just come off an upset victory over Naito, versus Naito's LIJ stablemate, Shingo Takagi. Both men came into this match with two points, and they both share somewhat similar histories heading into this year's G1 tournament. Shingo entered New Japan last year as a junior heavyweight, and he's trying to move up to fighting more often in the heavyweight division after getting pinned only once as a junior. Taichi also started as a junior heavyweight, and his rise to the heavyweight division only came last year, I believe it was, just a little prior to Shingo's arrival. 
But even though Tai Chi got a head start in the heavyweight division, this is the first G1 for both men. Tai Chi was clearly looking down at Shingo and questioned why the runner-up of the Super Junior Tournament even deserved a spot in the G1. That overconfidence cost Tai Chi in this match. Shingo started the action before the bell and he attacked Tai Chi, sending Tai Chi out to the floor. Shingo had the advantage until Tai Chi used the lovely Miho Abe as a distraction. Shingo and the referee were taking their time dealing with Miho at ringside, and Tai Chi grabbed the microphone that he uses to pretend to sing his entrance theme and smashed Shingo over the head with it. That move set Tai Chi up with some momentum, and he didn't really try to cheat much for the rest of the match. There was one time late in the match where he tried to hit a low blow, but for the most part, Tai Chi tried to beat Shingo one-on-one in the middle of the ring. Now, I've talked about how impressive Tai Chi can be when he actually wants to wrestle, and this was one of those impressive nights. He and Shingo went back and forth, and both men had nice sequences where they strung together some nice moves. Tai Chi tried to match Shingo's power with some power of his own, but once Tai Chi started to realize that Shingo was building momentum, it was really too late. Shingo ended up beating Tai Chi with Last of the Dragon and a whole bunch of lariats in the last few minutes of the match, and Shingo jumped up to a four-way tie at the top of the block, though that tie was guaranteed to be broken by a match later in the night. Tai Chi dropped to 1-2 and two in the tournament. He deviated from his usual plans of copious amounts of shenanigans, but I think if he can find a balance between the shenanigans and the wrestling like he did against Naito, then Tai Chi can bounce back and put up a respectable number in B-Block. The second B-Block match during Night 6 was Jeff Cobb versus Juice Robinson. Cobb has had an underwhelming start to the G1 as far as points go, but Juice was riding the momentum of being undefeated heading into this match. The match started off with both men adhering to the code of honor and shaking hands, and this was a respectful fight for both men. Cobb and Juice both wanted to prove that they were the better wrestler tonight, and they fought a fun back-and-forth match of power moves and strikes. Juice had the early advantage in the match. Juice came out with some lariats and frustrated Cobb by countering anything Cobb tried to do. Cobb had to roll out to the floor so he could figure out a new plan of attack, but Juice kept taking the fight directly to Cobb. They quickly got back in the ring, and Cobb was able to bide his time and build some momentum back up. Cobb did start to come back, and the second half of the match was a trade-off of power moves where both men were trying to hit their biggest moves while often countering or just simply avoiding their opponent. This was an even match throughout, but Juice started to get caught more and more late in the match. Cobb finally hit his Tour of the Islands Power Slam after trying for it a few times, and Cobb got his first two points in the G1 with a pinfall victory. I was a little surprised that Cobb beat Juice tonight, but I think that had more to do with their previous matches in the G1 rather than the two men themselves. I do think both guys are great, and I expect them both to do great things whenever I see them compete. With no context, I think this match could easily have gone either way, but with the huge momentum Juice has had and the exact opposite of momentum that Cobb has had, it was in the back of my mind that Juice was really going to come out on top tonight. He didn't, but I'm not upset about it. On the contrary, I was really happy to see Cobb get his first win. I was also really happy to see the respect shown throughout the match. After Cobb got the win, Juice raised Cobb's hand in the air before leaving the ring. The next B-Block match on Night 6 was the shortest match of the tournament so far. It was Jay White versus Toriyano, and it was great. Gato accompanied White to the ring as usual, and the two members of Bullet Club attempted to use devious teamwork to out-cheat Yano. 
White immediately rolled out to the floor once the opening bell rang, so Yano exited the ring on the opposite side and yelled for White to get back in with him. Gato eventually baited and distracted Yano enough for White to make a sneak attack, and back in the ring, White was the first of the two men to get one of Yano's go-to moves, the low blow. White seemed to have Yano scouted, but Yano always seems to have backup plans within backup plans. White set Yano up for Blade Runner early, but Yano pushed the referee out of the way and spit mist into White's face while in the position for the Blade Runner. Ghetto tried to use the ensuing confusion to slip some brass knuckles to Jay White, but Yano intercepted and hit White with a brass knuckles assisted low blow. A quick schoolboy follow-up from Yano ended the match, and Kevin Kelly and Rocky Romero cheered as loud as they have during the entire G1 as Yano moved up to a tie at the top of the block and White remains in a tie for dead last with zero points. Once again, Yano delivered a super fun match. The next B-block match was the current Intercontinental Champ Tetsuya Naito versus Hiroki Goto. Both men were coming off of losses in the previous round, but Naito was a bit worse off with no points so far in the tournament. Goto started the action though, and he aggressively attacked Naito by choking Naito with his t-shirt before the opening bell. The fight spilled to the outside, but that's where Naito changed the entire complexion of the match. Naito caught Goto as he was sliding back into the ring, so with Goto face down on the mat with his legs hanging out over the edge, Naito drove Goto's knee straight down onto the corner of the ring. Naito was trying to hyperextend Goto's knee, and it looked pretty brutal. That one move allowed Naito to control a huge portion of this match. Naito followed up with repeated attacks to Goto's legs. Naito's attack was very smart because it effectively negated Goto's ability to throw hard strikes since his base was compromised, and it allowed Naito to keep Goto down on the mat for a lot of this match, so Goto couldn't use any of his more powerful holds and throws. After minutes of Naito being in control of the match though, Goto began to push through the pain and started delivering some of the moves that he's known for, even at the risk of hurting his knee even more. It started when Goto hit a hanging neckbreaker, and he managed to really start building momentum later by hitting a couple of Ushiguroshis. Goto used his bad knee for the impact on the Ushiguroshis though, so he needed to end the match sooner rather than later. Naito helped him out with that actually. Naito hit a huge DDT as the match neared the end, and he hit two Destinos on Goto for the pinfall victory. So Naito avoided the dreaded three-loss start that Jay White finds himself with, and the leader of LIJ got his first two points. Goto suffered his second straight loss, so after a promising start, one of my picks to win the block sits nearly at the bottom. I really enjoyed this match between Naito and Goto. Goto definitely seemed more emotional, whereas Naito remained tranquilo and wrestled a much smarter match. Maybe Naito has figured out this year's tournament three matches in. It's going to be a difficult climb to the top of the block at the position he's in, but it can definitely be done. And the final match during Night 6 of the G1 Climax 29 was an absolute war between John Moxley and Tomohiro Ishii. This was my favorite match of the night, and it's probably going to do well when I come up with my best of the G1 list at the end of the tournament. Both men went into this match undefeated, so barring a time limit draw, one of these two men were going to sit alone at the top of B block. Neither man really seemed focused on that though, as much as they were focused on testing themselves against their opponent. In the backstage comments after the previous night's matches, Moxley seemed like he was just looking forward to the tough battle that Ishii would give him. 
Moxley's had this very positive energy in every interview he's done with New Japan, and he genuinely seems to be happy to be here competing with everyone and wrestling how he wants to wrestle. Ishii was skeptical of Moxley in his comments, though. Moxley had called himself a mad dog, but Ishii, the stone pitbull, did not seem impressed. Ishii wasn't buying into the John Moxley hype if he was even aware of it or paying attention to it in the first place. I'm sure if Ishii watched Moxley during his latter Dean Ambrose days in WWE, then he wouldn't believe Moxley's boast unless he experienced it firsthand in the ring. Before the match even started, Ishii was the aggressor. As soon as he entered the ring, Ishii got right in Moxley's face, and the two men were head to head for a few seconds before the bell rang, and they both started just swinging their arms at each other as fast and as hard as they could. The energy was fantastic right from the start, so I was getting more excited for what was in store. Moxley took the fight to the crowd early in the match, and though I think the extended brawl and ensuing tour of the seats all around Korakuen Hall caused a dip in the energy, at least for me, but even with that, I do think that this was a good transition into the next part of the match. Moxley uses brawls to gain control, and that's definitely what he did here. Moxley dominated the match even when they got back into the ring. Ishii started to kind of hulk up like he tends to do in his matches, but Moxley squashed a comeback with another trip to the floor. This time, though, Moxley introduced some furniture. Moxley went under the ring and grabbed a pair of chairs, and he tossed one over to Ishii so they could have a duel. Moxley got the better of Ishii after bringing the chairs together a few times, and Moxley ended up throwing a broken chair at Ishii's head. And then Moxley introduced a table. The table became a focal point for the next few minutes as both men tried to take advantage of it, but it was Ishii who actually used it with a pretty spectacular dive off the top rope onto Moxley through the table down on the floor. That, of course, hurt Ishii as well, but it did set Ishii up for a string of offense back in the ring. As they entered the final few segments of the match, both men were trading strikes more and more often. Ishii tended to get the better of these exchanges, but Moxley would sometimes find a way to punctuate the exchanges with a knee or some other powerful move. Slowly, Moxley began to string together some sustained offense, and he finished the match with a knee trembler and two Death Riders, otherwise known as Dirty Deeds. It was a great hard-fought finish to an already great match, and this match was a great way to end a very fun and entertaining night of wrestling. And that wraps up round 3 of the G1 Climax 29. B-Block really shined during this round, and I think 3 of my favorite matches during round 3 came from the B-side. Tomohiro Ishii vs. John Moxley, Tetsuya Naito vs. Hiroki Goto, and Taichi vs. Shingo Takagi are joined by the A-Block Night 5 main event of Will Ospreay vs. Kota Ibushi as my favorite 4 matches during Nights 5 and 6. I'm not going to change any of my predictions right now, even though all but one of the wrestlers I predicted to win are kind of struggling right now. So I'm sticking with Abushi and Naito as my hopeful winners for each block, and Goto and Kenta as my more likely winners. Out of those four guys, only Kenta currently sits at the top of his block, and he's sharing that spot with Kazuchika Okada. But hey, we're only a third of the way through the round-robin portion of the match, and there are still 60 matches to go, so anything is possible. I'll be watching and talking about all of those matches and more as the G1 Climax continues, so keep checking out cnjradio.com for all of these mini-episodes, as well as the Wrestling House Show monthly episodes and the Retro Review Super Shows co-hosted by Joey. And of course, check out the family of CNJ Radio podcast at cnjradio.com and interact on Facebook and Twitter at House Show.
The next G1 mini-sode will be up in a few days because there's a break of a couple days between nights 7 and 8. So that means I'll have a little break between New Japan shows, which means that I'll get to catch up on WWE, which means I'll finally get to watch Extreme Rules that I missed last week. I guess I'll get started on that now, so wish me luck. Bye. I think I said everything I needed to say out there, and I have zero oxygen in my brain, so, you know, just watch that. Oh, goddamn it, shooter. My wife is gonna be so mad at me. Yeah, she hates tables and shit. It's all Easy's fault. He started the whole thing, anyway.